The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. Well, good morning. Welcome once again to the gathering of Harmony Bible Church. It's a great day to be here to worship Him this morning. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. I thank You for this opportunity that we have now to look to Your Word, that You would guide us through it, that You would give us wisdom, that You'd give us ears not only to hear, but also hearts that desire to live in light of what Your Word says, hearts that desire to obey. God, I pray that You would just work mightily in our midst. God, that You would be here with us and that we would be forever changed as we interact with Your Word. God, I pray that we would worship You in spirit and in truth and that You would do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We pray for Your your Spirit to be with us. We pray that You would just change us, grow us, and mold us and make us into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. So we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And today we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 15. We're not going to spend a ton of time reviewing. Like I typically do, I spend a little bit of time reviewing, but today I have a very long message. And you know, if I say that, then it's a really long message. So we're going to jump right in with the reading of God's Word. If you'll stand with me for the reading of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 20. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ and this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So let's start by looking at verses 1 and 2 and seeing how Paul opens this section of Scripture. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. 
Which gospel? The gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You know, it might seem somewhat odd that Paul would begin this section by telling the Corinthians that he's going to remind them of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. After all, that's really what he's been doing throughout this entire letter. Week after week, I've stood up here and I've said, Paul reminds the Corinthians again and again and again of the gospel. And even as we've talked about instructions for gathered worship these last several weeks, all of those instructions have been founded on the good news of Jesus Christ. What Christ has done for His church. The good news that He has called a people out to Himself, that He has saved a people from their sin, that He has rescued them from the penalty of their sin. And Paul says, now I'm going to remind you of the Gospel. So it might seem odd. However, as I've said many times before, and I'll continue to say this from this pulpit, as long as I have breath, that we as believers need to be constantly reminded of the Gospel. That as believers, we, are, we need to constantly remember the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Gospel not only gave us hope when we received it, but it's the Gospel that gives us hope today. It's the Gospel that gives us hope as we remember it. That's why Paul said that he wanted the Corinthians not only to receive it, to trust in it, but also, he says, to stand firm in it, to live in light of it, to hold fast to it, to look forward to the promises of the Gospel. You see, the Gospel has past, present, and future implications. And therefore, it's my desire today, and it's my prayer today, that as you hear this message that you have not only received the good news, but that you stand firm in the good news and you hold fast to the promises of the good news. Just this past week, I took part in a meeting and I I heard a brother whom I respect greatly. uh, A brother whom I've ministered alongside and and, and love dearly. I heard him say uh, that we need to grow and as we grow, we need to move beyond just the Gospel. And however, as he said this, I thought I couldn't disagree more. That we never move on beyond the Gospel. We certainly need to grow. But we grow by living in light of the Gospel. Growing in our application of it. And reminding ourselves of it until the day that we are united with Christ. You see, I believe that's primarily, that's my primary ministry as a pastor. is not to just tell you how to live. It's to remind you of the Gospel and let the Gospel dictate to you how you live. That as you lift up the Gospel, as you remember what Jesus Christ did for you, you will be motivated to live for His glory. So I can tell you, you need to go and you need to preach to the lost. I can tell you, you need to honor God with your finances. I can tell you, you need to honor God with your marriage or with your parenting. But as I preach the Gospel, as I remind you of the Gospel, as God reminds me of the Gospel, those things naturally flow out of a remembrance of the Gospel. So I see it as my primary ministry. And today's text provides us with a necessary reminder of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I titled this message, A Needed Reminder. In fact, I've preached through this text before. I preached through this text on Easter of April uh, 2014 here at this very church as a guest speaker. I preached on 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-20. through And really the text hasn't changed. So my message really hasn't changed that much. So if you were here and you remember it, well, it's primarily the same message because God's message 
hasn't changed. But hopefully, as we've worked through 1 Corinthians, you have a better understanding of how this connects to the rest of Paul's letter to the church. And as a church, we've changed. So certainly our application will change as we work through it. So without further delay, let's look at the first point in our sermon outline. The first point in today's outline is, number one, the priority of the gospel. The priority of the gospel. Verses 3-5, through five, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Paul says that of all the things he told the church in Corinth, it was the gospel that was of most importance. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth as the pastor of this church. He shepherded this church for a year and a half, an incredibly long time for Paul. And he says, I want to remind you what is most important. And as we look at what Paul says this gospel, this good news is, we easily see why Paul considered it not just important, but of greatest, in, of greatest importance. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And He appeared to Peter and the other apostles. So there's these two main statements followed by supporting evidence. He died and He was buried. He was raised and He appeared. First, Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You know, this statement will only make sense to us if we see ourselves as sinners. You all know, or most of you probably know this, but the the word sin is derived from an archery term, and it simply means to miss the mark. And God created mankind to live for His glory. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. All. It's pretty inclusive. It's a tall order that none of us have lived up to perfectly. We've all missed the mark, so to speak. We've all sinned. And Paul tells us in the book of Romans that there are none righteous, no, not one. He so goes on to say, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages, the penalty, the, the payment for that sin is death. But then he goes on to say, and the, the free gift of God, however, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, but in order to understand this statement, this idea that Christ died for our sin, we need to see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. You see, Jesus took upon Himself the punishment that we rightly deserved. Jesus, who was without sin, died in your place, paying the sin debt that you accumulated so that you might be reconciled to God. But Paul doesn't just say that Christ died for our sins. He also says, Christ died for our sins. How? According to the Scriptures. Now when he says according to the Scriptures, he's not talking about the Bible as we know it. He's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament, which foretold of the coming Messiah, the Savior, the Promised One. And specifically, the Old Testament, which speaks to a coming Messiah who would suffer and die. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Isaiah 53 which really points to the coming of Jesus. It's hard to imagine that we look at this and we see Jesus so clearly. 
because we understand that it's written about Jesus. But it's hard to imagine that, that the, the way in which Isaiah 53 is written, that, that the author couldn't have seen just the clarity in his mind, that God revealed to him the clarity in his mind of what Christ, what the Messiah would do. The Messiah would come and die. Isaiah 53, verses 4-10 through 10 says this, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. As for His generation, who, who considered that He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet He was with, rich man, with a rich man in His death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That text written about Jesus Christ, long before Christ ever came into this world to live and to die as a payment for our sin, predicted his coming. You see, the Old Testament doesn't just contain a few references about the Messiah. I remember one time visiting a Jewish uh, synagogue, and I remember the director of education. Uh, we asked the director of education, a number of us were, part of, were visiting the synagogue and asking some questions, and we said, are you waiting for the Messiah to come? And she said, well, there's really no reference to any kind of Messiah in the Old Testament. So there's a, there's a few obscure references in Isaiah that maybe talk about this coming Messiah, but we are not looking for a Messiah because the, the Old Testament, the, our Bible, the Jewish Bible, doesn't even point to a coming Messiah. But you see, there's not a few obscure references in Isaiah. The entire Old Testament points toward Jesus Christ. It's one redemptive, cohesive story that ultimately points the reader toward Jesus God wasn't in heaven wringing His hands, wondering what to do next when Christ was crucified. The crucifixion was God's glorious plan from the beginning. See, the evil plans in killing Christ accomplished God's marvelous plans. The passage we just read in Isaiah 53 actually attributes the death of Christ not to the Romans or to the Jews or even to us, but instead attributes the death of Christ to the Father Himself. It says, But the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, was pleased to crush Him. Even in the book of Acts, we see that God Himself handed Jesus over to die according to His predetermined plan. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, Peter says this, he says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross, he says, this was God's plan all along, but you're not guiltless. You nailed Him to the cross by the hands of godless men, and you put Him to death. You see, the message that Christ died on the cross is not a horrific tragedy. 
Instead, it's an incredible victory. Why? Because he died for our sin according to God's predetermined plan. That God determined at the beginning of history that this was his plan for the redemption of mankind. So Paul, having reminded the Corinthians of the first part of the gospel, that Christ died for their sins, for our sins, according to the scriptures, he next says, and that he was raised on the third day. How? In accordance with the scriptures. You see, the gospel is not just that Christ died for our sins, but also that on the third day he bodily rose from the dead. The resurrection stands as proof of his deity. That's why we don't have a crucifix hanging on the wall, but instead we have a cross to remind us that he is no longer there. That we can't remember the death of Jesus without also remembering the resurrection of Jesus. And it seems that in Corinth, the believers here had gotten confused, had gotten mixed up about the resurrection and exactly what the resurrection was all about. And some of them apparently began to even say that there was no resurrection, that they were going to die and that their bodies would not be raised. For in verse 12 he says, Now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul's confronting a false teaching here. He's saying, how can you say there's no resurrection? There certainly is a resurrection. Jesus was resurrected and you will be too. The gospel is not just about the death of Christ, but also about the resurrection of Christ. John Brodus summed up the importance of the resurrection when he said the following. He said, The resurrection was the seal of the sovereign of the universe affixed to his claim, to Jesus' claim. It declared him, Jesus, to be all that he ever professed to be. And so it establishes the truth of all his teachings and the whole Christian society. The great fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the central fact of the evidence of Christianity. See, Christ's resurrection proves that he was who he claimed to be. His resurrection proves the very thing for which he was crucified. He was crucified for claiming to be God, and because he was crucified, he was raised from the dead, and that proved his claim. In John 10, 30-33, Jesus clearly claimed to be God, and the Jews clearly understood his claim. He said, I and the, and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, him, answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. You see, the Jewish rulers understood his claims to be God, and therefore they wanted him dead. And interestingly, it's the resurrection that proves that his claims were indeed true. The resurrection shows Christ's deity, and it shows that all things are subject to him, even death. He defeated death because he's the resurrection and the life. That's why Romans 1.4 tells us that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. Paul continues on and says, not only that Jesus was raised on the third day, but that it was according to the Scriptures. That's why in this passage, as we just read in Isaiah 53, we read, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Yet, so the Lord was pleased to crush him, yet he will see his offspring, 
he will prolong his days. He says, the Lord was pleased to kill him, but he will live. His offspring he will see, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand in spite of death. So the Old Testament Scriptures point to a resurrected, a, a Messiah who would live again, who would defeat death. Even Job, not fully understanding the promises that he was pointing to, declared this truth in Job 19, verses 25-27. through 27. Job said, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on earth. See, Job had a picture of the future and he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, I know that He will live, and I know that at the end of all times, He will take His stand on the earth. And then Job said, and after my skin is destroyed, after I am dead, yet from my flesh, I will see God. He said, even after I'm dead, I know that I will bodily see God. Why? Because there's a resurrection. He says, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. And Job said, my heart faints within me. I see that after I am dead, I will live again and be united with God. Why? Because my Redeemer lives. Jesus himself testified that the Old Testament pointed forward to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's why he said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, he says, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said that Jonah, the story of Jonah and Jonah's life points to something far greater than Jonah. Jesus said, he points to me. And just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so I will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, but I will be raised up. You see, God had long ago promised a Messiah, a Savior, who would come and die for the sins of His people and be raised up in victory over death. And through the resurrection, Christ's claims are validated. They're brought to fulfillment and the power of death is defeated. So we have what Paul says is of first importance, the good news, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried, proof that He died, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and appeared to many. So my encouragement to you is receive this good news this morning. Realizing that this isn't good news, simple good news like you want a new car or somebody paid off your mortgage. I mean, that would be good news, right? But instead, this is the greatest news ever. And I wonder how excited we would get with good news like somebody paid off your mortgage. And yet... We come here week after week to herald the greatest news ever told. And there's a lack of excitement sometimes. Oftentimes. Even within my own heart. And I begin to pray. Even as I step down from the pulpit, I begin to pray, Lord, prepare me for next week as I gather with brothers and sisters in the Lord to worship You, to proclaim Your Gospel, to lift up Your Gospel. Create in me, stir in me an excitement that realizes this is the greatest news ever told. Told. Such good news that some 2,000 years later, it's still being celebrated. In spite of all that we see that's going on in this world, there are churches that are gathering right now up and down the coast in one of the darkest places in this country, by the way, in Maine. And it's still being celebrated. In spite of all that, 
Why? Because it's the greatest news ever. So I just encourage you to receive this good news today because it's of utmost importance. And living and sharing the gospel was the priority for the Apostle Paul. And it should be the priority for us today. So now that we've looked at, number one, the priority of the gospel, let's look at the second point in our outline. The second point is, number two, the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. In verses 6 through 7 we read this. After he had appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So there's this evidence of his resurrection. He appeared, proving that he was indeed resurrected. It's not hearsay, but more than 500 people at one time even saw him. And then in verses 8 and 9 he says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. As to one who was an apostle, but not chosen like the other apostles, who came to be an apostle in a different time frame and in a different way, Paul says, he appeared to me also, verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul, this is Paul, the man who wrote some 30 to 40% of the New Testament. The man who went to Corinth, proclaimed the gospel, the man who founded this church in Corinth, who pastored and shepherded this church in Corinth, he says, I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. Why? He says, because I persecuted the church of God. You see, Paul hadn't simply been unconvinced that Christianity was true. He wasn't somebody who was on the fence and wasn't really sure. He wasn't somebody who went to, to church on Sunday and just sat in the pew and was unconvinced. Instead, Paul was hostile to Christianity. He sought to see that Christians were killed. It's in the book of Acts where we first hear of this young man then named Saul, whose name was later changed to Paul. We hear of this young man, Saul, in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, Stephen had just finished preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news we just heard about. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Peter, uh, Stephen preaches this. Excuse me, Stephen preaches it. And the people's response is less than favorable. In Acts 7, actually starting at verse 58, we read this. When they had driven him, this is Stephen, out of the city after preaching this message, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. This is Stephen's prayer, by the way. Just a side note. The boldness of Stephen to pray this prayer. And you think God answered his prayer? He calls this young man named Saul to be an apostle. Stephen, in his dying breath, says, Lord, do not hold this against them. And God answers Stephen's prayer and calls Saul to write 30 to 40% of the, of the New Testament to be used as an apostle of God. What a godly example of Stephen. He cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Acts 8 verse 1 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. See, Paul hated the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hated the message of the cross. So he isn't joking when he says that he persecuted the church of God. And there is no middle ground. We talk about how Paul wasn't just indifferent to the gospel. Really, nobody's indifferent to the gospel. Jesus was clear, you are either for me or you are against me. See, there was something inside of Paul that stirred up this hate for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he persecuted the church of God, yet something remarkable happened. Later on in the book of Acts, we read that the Lord opened Saul's eyes. He completely changed directions. And instead of persecuting the church of God, Acts 9 says that he immediately began to proclaim Jesus, saying that he is the Son of God. He immediately began to proclaim Jesus once his eyes were open, saying, He, Jesus, is the Son of God. Look at our text again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, I persecuted the church of God, 15.10, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace, God's grace, did not prove vain. But instead, I labored even more than all of them. Even more than all the other apostles. He says, I labored. I worked hard. God's grace produced in me this fruit. And I labored, I worked hard, even more than all the other apostles. He says, yet, not I. Yes, I worked hard. But it wasn't me. It was the grace of God with me. See, Paul didn't think, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and I worked for for God, and I paid God back for what He did for me. Paul understood that as he labored, he was indebted to God more. You realize that every time I get up to preach a sermon, I realize I am more indebted to God. That it's only by His grace that I can stand up here and present God's Word. That it's not that God... God sent His Son to die for me and now I repay Him somehow by preaching His Word. That I have something to offer as payment. Instead, I stand up here realizing I have nothing to offer. I can't even do that which I have been called to do. So I stand up here relying on His grace, knowing that week after week I'm further and further indebted to Him. And the same is true for all of you. That every morning... You wake up, your lungs breathe fresh air, and you think, you should think, I'm further indebted to His grace. See, it's only by grace that we can live for His glory. But we need to be like Paul who said, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. See, Paul went from persecuting those who preached the gospel to laboring more than all the other apostles for the gospel. And he did it by the grace of Christ. Because he understood the power of the gospel. Paul knew of the gospel's power to transform lives. He knew it because he lived it. Paul, through this letter, is testifying, I think, to us today to receive the message of the gospel. To know its power. To let it transform us. Regardless of who you are. Regardless of your past. Regardless of the 
obstacles in front of you today, my plea to you is to know the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, if the Lord Jesus could make Saul a new person, could give him a new life, a new purpose, a new direction, then I assure you he, could, he can do the same thing with you. I know he did with me. The biggest obstacle that often stands in our way of experiencing the power of the gospel is pride. As human beings, we often think we don't need grace. We're a good person, despite the fact that the Bible says otherwise. Or we think, we also, we may even think, you know, I do need grace. I'm not good enough. Well, no kidding. The Bible says, no, you're not good enough. That's the point. But Jesus is. Jesus paid your sin debt. So I, I just urge you, receive the power of the gospel. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ and experience that power in your life. And don't just believe with your mind, but receive it in your heart. See, the difference is like a Christmas gift. You can receive a Christmas gift and just have it sitting under the Christmas tree. But unless you accept that gift, unwrap that gift, claim that gift, it is of no value to you. Christ died offering that gift. And you need to receive that gift of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. I don't know where any of you are at with the Lord Jesus Christ. The only person in this room where I know, that I know is a follower of Jesus, beyond the shadow of any doubt, is myself. Because I know what's in my heart. I know what He's done in my life. And I don't know for the rest of you. Certainly, I think many of you are, are followers of Jesus. I've seen what appears to be God's amazing grace in your life. But I would encourage you today to examine your lives and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a follower of Jesus, that you have received the gospel, and that you're experiencing the power of the gospel day by day in your life. Paul didn't just hear the gospel message, he received the gospel message. And once he received it, he stood firm in it. And he immediately changed his direction. And he served the Lord with intensity. See, it wasn't just that the gospel had the power to forgive Paul. It also had the power to change Paul, to continue to transform Paul. And I believe that is true of us. So you may be here, maybe you're a believer, and you say, I really haven't grown, I really haven't changed. I'm really in the same spot I was last week. I'm really in the same spot I was last year or five years ago. And I would say you need to remember the power of the gospel. You need the gospel to become real to you once again in your life. You need to remember what Christ did for you. And as you remember that day by day, it will transform you. Paul didn't believe the gospel and go on his merry way. He let the gospel radically alter his life. And I would encourage you, nobody is too far gone. God used the likes of Paul, Peter, David, Moses, Jason, Polly. He can use the likes of you too. So looking at our third point in our sermon outline, we've seen the priority of the gospel and the power of the gospel. Now let's consider the promises of the gospel. Number three, the promises of the gospel. Without the resurrection, the message of the cross no longer needs to take priority in our lives. If there's no resurrection, then the priority, then the gospel is not a priority. It's not good news. Because if Christ was not raised from the dead, then He is not God. And without the resurrection, we cannot talk about the power of the gospel. Because the gospel has been stripped of its power if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. It, he didn't defeat death. 
If He just died, then there's no power in the Gospel. If Christ was not raised, then death is victorious. And without the resurrection, we'll see here as we work through this next point that the promises of the Gospel are equally stripped away. Without the resurrection, the promises of the Gospel are gone. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12-20. through Paul says this, Now, if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In this section, Paul tells us seven things that are true if Christ has not been raised from the dead. He says if Christ has not been raised from the dead, these seven things are true. He says our preaching is in vain. The word vain here simply means without result. He's saying that if the resurrection is not true, there's no point in preaching or sharing Jesus. Because it will be without result. That You can preach all you want. You can share all you want. But if Jesus was not raised from the dead, there's no result to it. It's all in vain. You might as well skip church. and Stay home and stay in your slippers and read the Sunday newspaper and watch TV. Number two, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is in vain. In the same way, the idea is without result. If Christ has not been raised from the dead then our faith, it isn't going to matter in the end. Can you imagine the horridness of that thought? That if Christ was not raised, none of this matters, says Paul. Your faith is worthless. It's vain. So give it up. Number three, he says we are false witnesses of God. He says that without the resurrection, we're gathering together to claim that God said something and did something that he didn't do. We're making a liar out of God. We're attributing work to God that is false and is not of Him. Number four, he says our faith is worthless. Not only will our faith have no result in the future, he says, but it is of no value to us today. There's no benefit to the Christian faith even in this life if there's no resurrection. Number five, he says we are still in our sins. Paul says that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we will receive the just punishment for our sins. They were not paid for. This should cause us to shake, to, to, to realize the importance of the resurrection. If Christ was not raised from the dead, says Paul, we are still in our sins. We will receive the just punishment for our sins. Number six, He says the dead have perished. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the dead too, those who are asleep, have perished. They'll remain dead. We've all lost loved ones and we look forward to heaven. We look forward remembering that and seeing the day where we will meet with them once again. And he says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, give it up. That's not going to happen. They are gone. There's no hope for you or for them at all. 
after this life. And then he says, in light of all this, number seven, he says, we are most, we are to be most pitied. If Christ has not raised from the dead, the world should look on us with pity. Saying those Christians are gathering there on Sunday morning. They gather, they talk about all these things, and none of it makes any difference whatsoever. And you know, that is often how the world looks at us. They look at us and say, they're to be pitied, because they don't believe any of this to be true. They feel sorry for us for having believed the gospel. But then Paul says this in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, and you will be too. He's the firstfruits of those who are already asleep, those who have already died. And once you die, you too will be raised from the dead. You see, my favorite word in all of Scripture is but. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He says all these things, these horrible things that are, that are going to happen if Christ was not raised from the dead, but He has been raised from the dead. Since, all these, since Christ has been raised, these things are not true. In fact, the opposite is true. So I want you to consider seven promises that we can derive from this passage based on the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. There's seven promises that I want you to see here. Number one, our preaching will bear fruit. It says that because Christ has been raised from the dead, that when we preach, there will be results. So when you lean over the fence, when you share the gospel with your neighbor, when you go to work and you share the gospel with those you work with, when you share the gospel with your family, even though it seems long and strenuous, and you pray for them day after day and night after night, and there seems to be no result, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, our preaching will bear fruit. It may not be the fruit that we think, fruit that, we're, that we see clearly all the time, but it will bear fruit. And our faith, our faith will bear fruit. That there will be results of our faith. That we can stand firm in our faith knowing that there's a result that comes from it. Number three, instead of being false witnesses of God, we are true witnesses of God. Instead of testifying against God, we testify with the God of the universe. Number four, our faith is of value in this life. That because Christ was raised from the dead, we have hope, not just in the life to come, but also in this life. That the Christian life is not an easy life, but it's a life filled with hope. It's a life where we have value knowing that we are witnesses for Christ. Number five, we are no longer in our sins. That because Christ is raised from the dead, He's delivered us. He's delivered us from our sin, and He is delivering us. That we're no longer stuck in our sins. That I instead can battle sin as a follower of Jesus Christ. That you can battle sin as a follower of Jesus Christ. Put it to death daily. Because you're no longer trapped by your sin. But instead, He paid the penalty for, for it. Number six, the dead in Christ are alive. This has got to be one of the most encouraging things ever. For those of us who have lost loved ones who are followers of Jesus, the dead in Christ are alive in Him. Because of the resurrection, I know that I will one day see my Father again. Because of the resurrection, 
you can know that you will one day see your loved ones in Christ once again. He defeated death and sin. And therefore, number seven, we can rejoice. We can rejoice because He has indeed been raised from the dead. So there's great joy in remembering the promises of the Gospel. So going back to where we started with verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, I said my prayer was that you would receive the good news, that you'd stand firm in the good news, and that you'd hold fast to the promises of the good news. Just as Paul said to the Corinthians. You receive it, stand firm in it, and hold fast to the promises. So the big question is, how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this, talk about the resurrection, talk about the priority of the Gospel, the power of the Gospel, the promises of the Gospel, and then seek to live it out both corporately as a group and individually? Well, number one, we need to remember the priority of the Gospel. We need to make it of first importance in all that we do. We need to not get distracted with the other things that we do, but instead make sure that the Gospel is the foundation for everything that is said, everything that is done, not just in evangelism, by the way, but also in discipleship. We don't preach the Gospel and then move on to talk about how we're going to live. We preach the Gospel and then preach the Gospel to talk about how we should then live. Paul's been talking in this a letter about letting all things be done for edification. The best way to let all things be done for the building up of the body is by always pointing back to the Gospel. We would do well to follow Paul's example. So we need to remember the priority of the Gospel. We need to preach the Gospel to ourselves and to each other daily. We need to make sure that everything we do in church is Gospel-centered. We don't need to sing a song if it's not focused on the good news of Jesus Christ. We don't need to preach a message if it's, if it's apart from the Gospel, from the good news of Jesus Christ. If we take communion and it just becomes tradition and it's not focused on the good news of Jesus Christ, then we're better to not take communion. We need to remember it's of first importance. Number two, we need to remember the power of the Gospel. We need to remember what Christ has done for us. And we need to remember what Christ is doing for us. We need to remember the power of proclaiming the Gospel to ourselves and to each other, day by day, and growing in grace. As I said, I can tell you how you should act, but instead, me proclaiming the gospel to you will be a, much more of a motivator than me ever telling you how you should live. And then we need to, as we remember the power of the gospel, we need to realize that what the world needs is Jesus. The world doesn't just need change. It doesn't need political change. Certainly, political change would be a nice thing in our world, but the The world doesn't just need political change. There's no hope brought about by electing a new president or a new congress. Because we will elect a sinful man or woman next time around. I guarantee it. I don't care who it is. Because what this world needs is Jesus. There's power in the Gospel. We need to remember that power. We have what the world needs, folks. We need to proclaim that need, the solution to that need to the world. And then number three, we need to remember the promises of the Gospel. We need to rejoice in those promises. We need to remember that there is hope because Christ has been raised from the dead and we're looking forward to an eternal life with Him. 
We also need to remember that he promised he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we can remember the priority of the gospel and proclaim the gospel. We can remember the power of the gospel and proclaim the gospel with great confidence, knowing that he is going to build his church, knowing that he will carry us through to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the love you have shown us through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know your Son, Jesus, as their Lord, as their Savior, God, that they would turn from their sin, that they would recognize their need for forgiveness, that they would recognize that they have indeed transgressed, sinned against your law, that God, your word says that none is righteous, no, not one, and that they would turn to your son Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross for their sin, and was raised from the dead, defeating death and sin, and that they would turn to him and follow him from this day forward. God, I pray for the rest of us, for those of us who do know your son Jesus, who have made that claim, who have repented of our sin. I pray that you'd help us to remember the gospel in our lives, that you'd help us to remember the priority of the gospel, that it is of most import, first importance, most important thing in all that we say and do, that we'd remember the power of the gospel, that it has transformed us and that it continues to transform us. The good news of what Christ did for us. Pray that we'd remember that this world needs your Son, Jesus. And that as we remember the priority and the power of the Gospel, we remember the promises of the Gospel. God, that we can not only stand firm, but we also have hope for the future. God, that we can rejoice in the promises, knowing that You will build Your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord, give us the strength to storm the gates of hell to become more like your, your Son, Jesus Christ, and to share the world with the world how they too can come to know Him. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.